between the time there's Jesus with his friends, men, he was very nice to him. Them. That's my daughter, Evelyn. She was giving me a Bible study. And her friend was named Chica and Chica and Chica. There's five, six, seven, eight. Eight friends? Yeah. There's not a lot there. You can start getting those words from Nora's Bible. One of the things I love about this recording is how you can hear the paper of her Bible rustling throughout the conversation. And then you can start reading Nora's Bible. Okay. Jesus was nice to his friends. And then there was no bad guys. Jesus was nice to them. And then there was no more bad guys. Just like that. I wonder if that could fix the world. How was he nice to them? Well, he was eating dinner next to them. Mm-hmm. And then, um, he just eat dinner and boiled on it because it was very hot. He was taking care of them. Mm-hmm. What were they eating? There was eating the... What's that? The kind of dinner we eat this day? Yeah. What is it called? What does it look like? It has cheese. Like cheese. Sometimes our stories are complex. Sometimes they're simple. This one perhaps is the most simple. What sometimes there is this? Nice God. Then... Um, and then he was very nice, but then he was very nice. The end. There was a God who was nice. There was a God who was nice. There was a God who was nice. The end. That simple. But even Evelyn realizes that it isn't always that simple. Remember what she said about Jesus being nice and there being no more bad guys? And then Jesus was nice to his friends, and then there was no bad guys. Well, I had a follow-up question with her about that. Turns out even three-year-olds struggle with the subject. What, what about all the bad guys? Oh, I'll talk about that right now, but... Other, the other bad guy part story, we can do that part later, okay? Okay, not now. No, just a little bit of that part. This is the bad guy part. See the bad guys? Yeah. No, the bad guy is not on his page. These words is the bad guy words. Whoa, a lot of bad guy words. Yeah. So then where was the bad guy? There was nice bad guys. Nice. So the nice bad guys were at the wedding. Well, they're not mean nice bad guys. They're just bad guys. Nice bad guys. Okay, so we have bad guys. We have nice bad guys, and then we have mean nice bad guys. No, there's then mean bad guys. And then mean bad guys. Yeah. I think I see. What? I think I understand. Hello, everyone. Welcome to B-Sides, where we discuss whatever cannot fit in a sermon. We are following up my sermon from the Gospel of Luke called Storytelling with Jesus. And to summarize it in 60 seconds, I hope... This is what we talked about on Sunday. Go. Jesus in the Gospel of Luke is a storyteller because Luke is recording Jesus' journey through Samaria between chapters 9 and 19. And in Samaria, he's dealing with the people that believe in a different Bible, have a different temple, and altogether a different religion than he does. He can't just teach and preach because they will reject his message. So he instead seeks to get in subtly through storytelling. 
he learns how to speak Samaritan. Samaria becomes a metaphor for our life between Sundays, when we're not at church speaking Christianese with everyone else. We must learn to tell stories. Now, we can tell stories through books, movies, or even our own life experiences. So, Jesus used parable. A parable is to throw something alongside of something. Therefore, I'm asking that we learn to parable, that we would throw the stories we're watching, the stories we're reading, and the stories we're living, that we would throw those stories alongside the Jesus story. I'll be honest, this was my third take. (laughs) Now you know. Uh, But we got it. So, coming up on this episode, we have a discussion with my wife, Brittany, about a story that has shaped her life. And then we will have a discussion with my friend, Dane Bundy, about the stories that changed his life and how we can become better storytellers ourselves. Here's my lovely wife, Brittany, on a story that has shaped her life. The novel, A Separate Piece, by John Knowles. It takes place at an all-boys preparatory academy called the Devon School um, in 1942. So it's, um, it's in World War II era. Jean, who is very introverted, very academic, um, and lives in fear without even realizing that this is crippling him. And then Phineas, who is the, um, he represents joy. Uh, he sees the best in people, draws out the best in people. He loves sports. He's, um, very affable. He is always being surrounded by a group of boys wherever he goes. They're best friends. And it's actually, it says a couple times in the book that Gene feels very lucky to have Phineas even consider him his best friend. Finney representing joy and then Jean representing fear. Jean is very jealous over Finney and his very easygoing lifestyle. Um, and so there is this theme of fear being jealous over joy. The boys are, um, they're jumping out of a tree. They're celebrating their last year of innocence before heading off to war. They're going to jump out of the tree together. However, Gene at this point is at the height of his jealousy towards Phineas. Um, and he purposefully jounces the limb of the tree. This is at the moment, um, right before they jump out of the tree together, Gene has realized that he's not even in the same class as Finney because um, what he had thought was Finney sort of sabotaging his academics and not wanting to be at the same level. Um, they didn't want to, he didn't, he assumed that Finney didn't want to be at the top level with Gene. Finney being in sports, Gene in academics. So Gene thought Finney was trying to sabotage his academics, but then he finds out right before jumping out of this tree with him, um, that that was not the case, that Finney never was trying to sabotage anything, that Finney never had an ounce of animosity towards Gene. Gene thought that they were on the same level in competition. He realized that there was no competition on Phineas's end. So he realized that he's not even in the same class as him. And he doesn't know what to do with this. He really doesn't know how to live as a best friend with somebody that doesn't even feel competition towards him. Um, so this jealousy um, overrides the friendship and he purposefully jounces the limb to make him fall out. How interesting. So because of Jean's jealousy towards Phineas, he almost begins to read false motives into Phineas that don't exist. Oh, he absolutely does. Okay, so Phineas falls out of the tree. Mm Mm-hmm. And he breaks his leg. He does. He breaks his leg. Um, it's shattered, so he can no, he can no longer do sports, which was his life. He excelled in sports. Um, 
so, and then of course, with a shattered leg, he is not eligible to go to war. What's going on with Gene after this leg-breaking moment? He's feeling so much guilt and so much shame. He actually, this is this happens at the very end of the summer session of school. So they have a month before the fall session. Um, and right before the fall session starts, Gene actually does go to Phineas's home um, and tries to apologize to him and tries to tell Phineas that what he did was on purpose, that he purposefully jumps the limb. He wants to get it all out. Um, yeah, so Gene confesses his He confesses, motives. Um, but Phineas, in his... Um, he's so innocent. Um, he just shuts him down completely and says that there's no way that you did that. Like, you're just talking crazy. You've had a long train ride, and you're not making sense right now. So he shuts him down and won't even acknowledge what he just said. Up to this point, Phineas is trying to believe the best about his friend. But then, a strange turn of events. It's supposed to be sort of a, a senior class prank, I guess. Um, and another boy in the school, um, he constructs this this mock trial and um, puts puts Gene on trial for this accident that occurred with Finney. Um, of course, it's supposed to be a joke. Nobody really thinks that he jounced a limb on purpose. But Gene sees this as a very real trial for himself because he knows that he is guilty. So in this trial, there's a, uh, a witness that comes forward and says, I saw him jounce the limb. So Phineas is at this time faced with the realization that this is all true. He really did do this on purpose to me. So his innocence is quickly shattered along with his leg um, because he never thought that his friend could do something like oh, that on purpose. So the, the physical leg is shattered, but now Phineas, something within him is mirroring his leg. Yes. Yeah. So um, in this moment, he realizes that what happened was was on purpose and um and his leg shattering was at the fault of somebody else um and he of course doesn't know in his own innocence and his joy he doesn't know how to handle this this hardship he doesn't know how to handle something being taken from him in innocence so he rushes out of this mock trial room um at the top of a marble staircase and falls down the stairs re-breaking his leg The story reminds me of this proverb, 27, verse 4. Wrath is cruel. Anger is overwhelming. But who can stand before jealousy? Yeah. And what's funny here is the play of that that scripture. Who can stand before jealousy? There's literally a broken leg here in this jealousy. Gene goes to visit Finney in the hospital, um, and he confronts him again. He um, he says, Finney, I tried to tell you. I tried to tell you this before, and Finney finally acknowledges, I remember that. I remember you coming to visit me and trying to tell me that this was on purpose. Um, and he he just says, but tell me this. Tell me that there was something inside you that tell me that there was no long animosity that it was just something that snapped inside you and um and and it was just a, an impulse decision um and and gene says it really was in in our long friendship this really was impulse it was a very brief time of jealousy and i didn't know what i was doing and i realized as soon as it happened that i, I was in the wrong and there's forgiveness there um finney says I've at times been so mad that I'm about to do something that I don't even know what I'm doing. So there's forgiveness here. They have their reconciliation of their friendship. Phineas would have surgery on his broken leg. But what Jean could not have known was that Phineas would not live through it. the very end of the story, um, all the boys 
of the senior class are about to head off into their different military branches. And at the very end of the book, Gene says that he was going into war, but he wasn't even fearful over what was going to happen because he had already he had already killed his enemy there at the school. What part of this story or parts has shaped you? Back when I first read it, it was a science reading in high school. And um, at the time, I was, I didn't know what to do with my own jealousy and friendships. I was definitely um, more like Jean than Phineas, although on the outside, I probably seemed more like Phineas to everybody around me. Um, and I didn't know what to do with the jealousy within me. Um, and reading this, it really puts a mirror in front of you um, to see your own jealousy and to see the other side of that jealousy in the other person and to be faced with the fact that jealousy is oftentimes not reciprocate or competition I should say um, competition is not always reciprocated um, so you could be feeling animosity towards somebody that simply feels love towards you It's really about taking every thought captive and um, so easily jealousy really can creep back in. Um, whether it's over a mom that does momming better or um, somebody that has a better job or a better home, whatever it may be, jealousy can creep back in so easily. And to, to be able to take every thought captive and being able to hold up this story and see what jealousy can do to a person, how it can basically eat them alive, really. And so many opportunities for that today, um, social media. Right, yeah. Just everyone's glamorous life being presented in front of us, not the unglamorous parts. Mm-hmm. So and all you're see. seeing is Finney. You're only being <laughs> affronted by Finney, and, um, but yet here's Jean within you that's... Um, um, that doesn't know what to do with your own inadequacy. Yeah, so your own fear is increasing simultaneously while everyone else's joy is increasing. Mm -hmm. That's the perception. Perception, It creates this loop, this vicious cycle. Mm -hmm. So how has this book helped you overcome fear and jealousy and tap into joy? Well, it really, I mean, it... It, it it held a mirror up to me, um, and to to see myself and this ugliness within me, it was a, it was able to to point out to me where I was straying, and how I could instead tap into the joy within me rather than the fear and the jealousy. There's a moment within this story. Jean and Finney are at the school pool. They're looking at these plaques and awards and school records that have been held. And they see one record for, I think, the 100-meter swim. And Jean notices that um, that it hasn't been beat in the past however many years, long time. And Finney says, hmm, I wonder if I could beat that. So they go to the pool, and Jean pulls out his pocket watch. And Finney jumps into the pool and beats the record without even being a swimmer. His sports are football and lacrosse and whatnot. And here he jumps into the pool and so easily beats a record without even training for it. This, for Gene, he has no idea what to do with this. He says, this doesn't count because I'm not an official record keeper and there's no witnesses. And he said, but tomorrow we can come back to the pool. We'll bring the school reporter. We'll bring the record keeper and a photographer. And Phineas quickly shuts him down and says, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do this again. And he said, I just, I honestly, just wanted to see if I could beat the record. Now I know I can, so it's beaten. But I don't want you to tell anybody about this. I don't want you to breathe the word of this. And and Jean has no idea what to do with this because he doesn't live in a world where people beat records just for the fun of it. He lives in a world where people beat records for for the the accolades of it. And so because he has to keep the secret, it grows bigger and bigger within him. And Finney then becomes more of an immortal um, giant. This is the moment when Gene realizes that Finney is of a different class than him because Finney doesn't do things out of competition. He's, it, this is the point where it says Finney was 
not somebody that he couldn't be friends with, but he was somebody that he couldn't really compete with. It's so interesting how um, Phineas's uh, motivation there wasn't to prove himself. Right. He just he was truly just doing it for the fun of it. Yes. This is the easy, laid-back world he lives in. Part of the angering thing, too, for Gene is, like, you don't even try. Like, you don't even practice swimming and you can beat this record. Like, mm-hmm. it's so easy for you. It's so hard for me. And I feel like that's true of some people in the world, or at least the perspective is. Mm-hmm. It can be so easy for some people and so hard for others. Why do you think that is? Oh... I don't know. I think some people just have it within them to to be comparing themselves to others, whereas other people, they truly just have joy and they can live without looking to the left or the right. They can just walk straight ahead. And I feel like as Christians, this is what we're called to do. We're called to just walk along and follow Jesus. And so for people that are looking on the outside of this, it might be really hard for people to see why things we don't get so worked up about things, I guess. Yeah, so it's a matter of perspective. Mm-hmm. What we're looking for. Right. And looking at. Yeah. And um and in the story, um, this is when Gene begins to keep a record. He keeps his own mental record of how he's measuring up to Finney. He can't measure up to Finney in sports. Uh, I mean, obviously, like he just beat a record without even trying. Um, but he can measure up in academics. And so, um, but this academics are something that he has to work at, whereas sports just come natural to Finney. So, um, so because he has to work at it, then Gene needs something else to add on to that in order to be on level with Finney. So he's constantly just keeping this mental tally of how he's measuring up, which is exhausting and crippling, really. Always keeping score. Mm-hmm. Keeps your eye on who's winning and mm-hmm. doesn't enjoy the joy of the moment of life. It's all analytical. Who's ahead, who's right. not. And Paul says in First Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrongs and it seems sensible to also say love keeps no records at all right that's exactly what i was thinking yeah yeah dane bundy again in my office dane bundy is a storyteller and he tells stories with lifehouse theater and stage and story Christian organization trying to encourage the Christian imagination and storytelling. Why did you become a storyteller? I probably would want to begin with a narrative that is kind of like the foundation of my family. Like we were just talking earlier about how the Jews, they have this narrative that they would pass on to their children and then their children would pass on to their children. And it was basically about God and what he had done and brought them through the, you know, the exodus and then the wilderness and so on. Right. Every year they would retell that story as a family. Exactly. Create an identity. Well, the Bundy family actually has a story like this. And the story begins with my great grandfather named Frank Bundy. And the story goes that he was this cowboy, unrestrained Pagan, as you can imagine. <laughs> okay, wait, wait. So your <laughs> grandfather. Great-grandfather. Great-grandfather. So how far back does this go? So that would be... 19... Early 1900s. Early 1900s. Okay, yes. so this is the real Wild West. This is the real Wild West, yes. And so he was a cowboy. He was saved at a, a rally, something similar to what we would see, like a Billy Sunday type thing. And it was pretty immediate for him. The Holy Spirit got a hold of him, and it was like a 180. So he just gave up those pagan cowboy roots and eventually poured himself into the ministry and went to South America as a missionary for just about all of his life. And there's some funny stories that my grandfather and my father will, will tell us. 
And one of them is that when he, my grandfather, went into retirement, he went into a, a community of Christians and found out that this Greek professor was one of the the members of this community, like a retirement community. And my great-grandfather was so excited because now he could finally have full conversations with this gentleman about Greek. And the professor kindly said, I've been talking and researching Greek all my life. Please, let's not do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and I came across some of my great-grandfather's notes a number of years ago and... It was it was wonderful. He actually went to Biola in L.A. for a while, so it was neat for me when I went to Biola to, to think that my great-grandfather was here. And yeah, and that's where you met your wife, Megan. That's where I met my wife, Megan, yes. And so my great-grandfather has left this legacy with the Bundy family, and what it has become is this narrative that in many respects defines our past – but also sets a trajectory for the future. And at family gatherings and such, this narrative is always kind of in the background. And sometimes it's just implicit. We'll talk about the Bundy legacy. Sometimes it's explicit. We talk about what the Lord is doing in our lives and what we're thankful for. And there's always this expectation that the Bundy family members are going to continue following the Lord and we see that as seeds that my great-grandfather planted and are continuing to sprout. And we truly see the Bundy family legacy as as something that God has graciously given us. It's not something that we feel, oh, God looked into the future and thought that these individuals would really be great, so he's going to... No, we, we really see it God's gracious hand on our family. And so it's really a privilege to continue that that legacy on. So I would say that 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 story was something that has really interested me in the art of storytelling and been something that I'm often thinking about. So we have Cowboy Bundy, Cowboy Bundy becomes Christian Bundy, right? And then goes to South America right. as a missionary. I just love the contrast. It's it's almost two different kinds of cowboy from one <laughs> wilderness to another <laughs> yeah that's a great way to put it absolutely and uh it's so neat though to hear that there's this family story through which you guys understand each other i wonder does does this narrative shape the way you make decisions in your own life yes i i do think it does and i think it does it in in this way i see our family as a family that god has placed his hand upon. And I see ourselves as like a repository of God's faithfulness and goodness. And so when I'm looking at future decisions, I'm thinking about how can I give back? Hmm. I've been given an incredible privilege of having these godly men, faithful godly men and women around me who just keep pouring and pouring spiritual wisdom and advice into me. And so when I'm looking forward I'm thinking, how do I use this great privilege that I've been given? And how do I give back? How do I use all that I have that so many families around me don't have? So many broken families that their spiritual heritage is either not there or very fractured or that's not the case with the Bundy family by God's grace. And it's, it's kind of this burden of, all right, we need to live up to the faithfulness of our ancestors in a matter of speaking. Yeah, like a, a good burden. And a like good a, burden. A responsibility. Yeah. Responsibility. You've been given much, so much is required in yes. a sense. Yes. So on one hand, we're, we have this Cowboy Bundy narrative that you find yourself continuing. You're, you're another chapter in this legacy. Then you're a Christian, a Christian storyteller, and you've got this other great big story. Mm. You, you know, in a sense, like you're in Bundy, <laughs> in a way, but you're also in Christ. Mm. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about how the biblical narrative has shaped you? Yeah, that 
especially these last 10 years, it has dramatically shaped me and seems to bring continuity to so much of my, my life. I'm only 30 years old, 32, but it has brought so much continuity to, to it. I remember sitting in seminary, and I can't believe it took this long for it to finally hit me, but I was in a theology class, and I don't know what it was, but it was finally explained to me that what we see in Scripture is one unified mm-hmm. story. Yeah, the curtain goes up in Genesis and comes down in Revelation. Exactly, and it encompasses all of human history. And it gave this wonderful framework for me as a actor in this drama, right? Um, A drama that God the Father has written the script, that the Spirit is directing, and the main actor is his son, Father's son, Jesus. It's hard for me now to think about stories that we see in movies or stories that I'm working on without putting it in the framework of God's great redemptive story. Right. Now, I, I think that some people hear this sometimes, like the story of the Bible and right. the gospel is a story. In fact, gospel, uh, Old English is God's spell, which means God's story. The, the gospel right. is the good news that this has happened. Yes. But what is the this? What is the story? Yes, that's that's a great point. We seem to see a lot of different stories that are being told in the Bible. So what is this story? I, I would say that just like you said, it begins in the garden and God had established this, this setting fellowship with the pivotal part of his creation of human beings, men and women, and they rebelled and God was so committed to his creation, specifically Adam and Eve and uh, their ancestors that he eventually would take on human flesh and, and pursue them and pursue yeah. them and find a way to redeem creation. So what we see in the biblical stories, it begins in a garden in Eden and it ends in a garden and mm. and the new heavens and the new earth and God throughout human history from the fall all the way to the return of Christ. God is working out redemption uh, through his son bringing his people back to the place that they were kicked out of by their own rebellion. Right. So this is a really big story. Yes. How does it shape you? It shapes me because it gives a foundation for, I know this sounds kind of cliche, but it just gives a shape for all that I do. So I'm able to frame wherever I am in my life. So I understand because of this grand story, I understand where I'm going. I understand that without Christ, where I would be. And so I see myself, if I were to draw out a story chart, right, on the far left would be one garden, Garden of Eden. And on the far right, there would be the, the Garden of the New Heavens and New Earth. I see myself on that story chart as part of God's redemptive history and all these Christians and, and godly men and women that come bef- that came before me. Right. And so when I'm looking out on choices that I'm going to make, plans that I'm I'm thinking through, I see myself in light of this big story. Mm. In other words, it helps frame my trauma, the Bundy drama, the Dane Bundy drama, right. because it helps me understand that I am just one part of this big story that is being right 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 so your story fits within another story yes which it was just so liberating that i don't have to land my story perfectly because if my story crashes the story doesn't crash exactly i love that it's almost too it's almost it's almost like so we have the story it's almost like god himself is a storyteller mm-hmm. um actually don on me as we're talking right now that yes the creation he's spoken to being yes which i mean it's a stretch to say that that's a story but come on let's be honest he's speaking it from the beginning he pursues us by coming in human flesh and yes teaching and preaching but also by telling stories yes which we have called parables yes to pursue us and it almost seems appropriate that you would then say well i want to be a storyteller too absolutely how people who are not theatrical, 
people that work in an office or are retired or have hardly ever watched a movie, never read fiction, mm-hmm. never go to the theater. Like, how can we incorporate storytelling in everyday life? Boy, that's a great question. I think that's an important one. I think it begins with, especially for those who are not used to taking in stories or telling their own story, I think it begins with asking questions Mm -hmm. about asking about other people's stories. Almost like you become a receiver of stories first. Right. So I think becoming... A great storyteller takes a long time, and mm. one of the key ways to do that is to take in just a bunch of stories, especially the great ones. But it begins with getting to know the people around you by asking questions, which inevitably lead to those people telling you their story. And so if I were to approach someone and just you know, how are you doing today? And and those questions then, you know, I'm doing fine. And getting to know someone beyond just those surface level questions, but starting to ask, where are you from? What is, you know, what is your, your family like? What, you know, and so on and so on. I come from a family that asks a lot of questions. So I bring girls home to dinner and my parents would just pummel them with, uh, you know, <laughs> 2,500 questions. And, and in that way, you're continuing the Jewish legacy. Yes. Not only do you guys recite a story, but you guys ask questions yeah. and then answer the questions with questions. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so much so that, you know, in college, I would almost would be offended if I'm in a conversation with someone and I ask them questions and then they would just stop at answering the questions and not ask me questions oh, back. Yeah, yeah. And I've had to learn from that, that not everyone was trained to ask questions and that's okay. But I think that if you want to become a good storyteller, one of the best ways to be, to do that is to start asking about other people's stories because most people like telling their stories. So, so interesting because yeah, we're, you hear the word story out there a lot now mm-hmm. and we even call the news stories, like okay, breaking yes. story or breaking news. Uh, what, what really in the raw components, can you help us understand what a story is? Sure. Usually a story has to do with someone who wants something. That's kind of the beginning part of a story. Which is everybody. Which is everybody. I want more. Everyone has the I want song. Yes. <laughs> and so I want something. And then the engaging stories are stories in which someone wants something, but something's in the way. Mm-hmm. So that could be an internal obstacle. It could be an ex- external obstacle. But there's that conflict element which makes a story Interesting. Right. Boy wants girl, but he doesn't feel adequate. Yes. Um, humanity wants fulfillment, but there's sin. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And in the the grand story of redemption, which the Bible is telling, we see that from you know, chapter 3 of Genesis, that conflict is introduced. Mm. And so we have the perfect illustration of great storytelling in the Bible. It's telling us what a great story looks like. I, I feel like a lot of people don't know their own story. Mm. And so when you counsel us to ask questions, to learn how to become a storyteller, it also seems like we are helping other people find their own story, find their own context, find where they are in God's plan. And it's just cool, like, just little, I don't know, just a little, like, reciprocal thing going on. Absolutely, because a lot of people are aware of what they want. A lot of people are aware of what's in the way, keeping them from getting what they want. But a lot of people don't know how to connect those two things with what's going on in the world around them. That's So that's why I would say that the grand story of redemption helps put our own stories, our desire, what we want... And what we're fighting against, our kind of central obstacle, puts it in context. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so we, we, we kind of went off the path here. Right. Uh, someone wants, there's a desire. Mm-hmm. There's an obstacle in the way of that desire. Yes. Then there's generally this resolution or conclusion of sorts. So some stories will end where it's broken, where... A person wants something, there's an obstacle in the way, and then that person does not get it. Hmm. So 
our typical tragedy. Mm-hmm. And then there's the the happy ending where it's still a conclusion or a resolution. Person wants something. There's an obstacle. The person is able to overcome it, and then they get it. And yay, happy ending. So I would say that those are kind of the three components of a story. There's a, a, a central character who wants something, who encounters an obstacle, and either is broken by that obstacle or finds a way to overcome it. Gotcha. So act one, I need it. Act two, it's not that easy. Yes. Act three, does it happen or does it not? <laughs> yes, exactly. And the beautiful thing about the Bible and its stories, it kind of just gives away for us what act three looks like. Yeah. It, it promises Jesus is going to return. Jesus has got this whole thing fulfilled. The Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we know that that is going to happen. Yes. It's the act two that most of us worry about all the time. Are we going to make it? Uh, am I personally going to get through this debt? Am I personally going to get through this relationship battle? <laughs> am I yes. going to get through the schooling I'm going through? Yes. I think act two is us experiencing the fall essentially. And the book of Ecclesiastes is actually, I see it as a story of probably Solomon reflecting on his life, pursuing all that he wants and just truly being unsatisfied and then leaving some pretty profound reflections for those who will come after him about what in this life is really empty and what has substance. And so if we could go back, if I could, I know a lot of our listeners are not able to to visually see this, but if I could draw a story chart that um, begins in the left-hand corner and works its way up and ends in a conclusion. Ecclesiastes talks a lot about what is in between the fall and the new creation. And it's these very insightful reflections. In other words, reflections on the muck of what it means to be living in a fallen world. And I think that while to many people are very depressing, they're... Right, yeah. They're... Yeah. I hear that from everyone. Why are we reading Ecclesiastes? Yeah. It's so so depressing. What I think it's doing is it's saying, let me give you my wisdom, my years of experiencing everything. So he's experienced incredible wealth. He's experienced incredible pleasure. And he says, I've really tasted it all. And I'm telling you now, it's like he's talking to his son or his grandson. And he's saying, let me tell you what is of substance. So you Mm. don't waste your time on what is like wind that is here. And then it's gone the next day. I I like that perspective. It is a little bit more hopeful. It's almost Mm -hmm. like, hey... Reality check, we don't live in Eden anymore. Right. Right. We're in the middle of the struggle of Act 2. So how do you cope? How do you get yes. through this? Yes. Let me share you my personal adventure. Yes. Uh, it's almost like Solomon's memoir of sorts, mm-hmm. you know? Yes. Yeah. I Strangely enough, I see it as a very hopeful book. It's almost like a... It's It's like someone writing a book about the national parks who has gone to all of them and has spent years traveling and knows at what time, the best time of the day to go to this park and see the sunset here and and where you can go if you want to get bit by a bear. Or, <laughs> right? And so yeah. it's like this very experienced man saying, this is how we get through living in this fallen world. And I find that very hopeful. So you, you mentioned Solomon saying... Look, this stuff doesn't have substance. This stuff does. Mm-hmm. I want to hear your thoughts about the great divorce. Oh, yes. Uh, we, we talked briefly about that last time. Yes. Uh, but you sent me, <laughs> you already touched on Ecclesiastes, but hey, Dane, what are the stories that have shaped you? And you say, Adventures in Odyssey, <laughs> which I know some people, I, I listened to those. Yeah. Once you said it was on the radio, I'm like, oh, I, I remember them. Yes. Um, the Great Divorce, the Biblical Narrative, and Ecclesiastes. Well, now you've explained to us how Ecclesiastes is a story yes. that shaped you. Um, but yeah, let's talk about The Great Divorce. Oh, and I think it kind of sounds like it dovetails off Ecclesiastes a little bit. Yes, that's a good... I never thought about that, but I definitely see that. I see The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis as in the same genre as Augustine's City of God 
Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, and so on. It's it's these wow. journeys of Christian, you know, in a matter of speaking, in Pilgrim's Progress, working through this long journey ending in eternal life or that, you know, celestial kingdom. Yeah. The great, great divorce is, is just from a little bit different of a perspective. It's, it begins in the great town, right? Which is, um, ironically, there's not much substance there. And that makes a little more sense when he, when this central character gets on the bus and is driven up to this new land, this new place in which he then is invited by these heavenly beings to enter in to this beautiful place. And what this central character finds that is it's much more difficult and painful than he thought. And so very much like in Pilgrim's Progress, many of the secondary characters quickly go, well, this is not for me, I'm heading back. So there's a lot of characters who who start running towards this place, this heavenly place and great divorce, and quickly realize that this grass is like, or I'm sorry, this grass is like shards of glass. Right, yeah, they have a hard time stepping on it. They can't, yeah. be, it's it's more real or of more substance than they are, so it's terribly painful. So they get back on the bus and go back down to this great town. It's almost like... They wanted whatever that land was, and are we calling it heaven? Is it? Yeah, let's let's safe? call it. I think we can call it heaven. But there's an obstacle. <laughs> it's almost like the act two sent them back. Yes, into the bus, sent them backward. And ironically, the obstacle in in Lewis's book is internal. It's yes. themselves. Yes. So there's all these different tests that these heavenly beings say. Once you overcome these. Not only will you be able to come, but you'll be able to en- enjoy this place. Yeah. And we find that this man um, is led by with George MacDonald, probably. Who happened to be C.S. Has- Lewis's writing mentor, right? Yes, right. His writing mentor. And so, it, once again, in the, in similar to Dante's uh, trilogy, <laughs> so Lewis is, he's just building off all of these, these great pieces of literature and, the Great Divorce has shaped me because I think of – actually, I think probably what what is most influential is his description of the gray town. So here's this town and you see his use of the color gray, which is like um, neither white nor black. It's just kind of like in between. It's kind of ghost-like. And what always stood out to me was kind of the description of what goes out – what goes on in this gray town where these – um, people will will exist in the gray town, and then they'll have a conflict with someone, their neighbor, yeah. and then they'll move, right? And then they'll have a conflict. So we'll have people like Napoleon, right, who's still pacing back and forth, but he's so far away, like light years away from anyone else. Right, right. It's so good. That and, it, yeah, it's such a great image. And so I, I think Lewis is trying to tell us that in a matter of speaking, heaven is here right now. And the choices that we make are either reinforcing that we are um, experiencing God and experiencing this spiritual transformation, or we are going the absolute other direction. And so it's almost like, and I don't want to say dogmatically this is what he was saying, but it's almost like, Earth right now is a purgatory of sorts, and as a Protestant, I'm not—I don't think that purgatory exists in the same way that the Catholics do. But right. but it's this idea of this purging of of those things that would prevent us from being able to experience heaven. That's so good. So Lewis has just done an incredible, incredible job, and then when you link it with all these other brilliant godly men and women who have painted the Christian life as this journey, mm-hmm. it's it's so helpful. As I look forward, I, I see myself like Christian or like this man in C.S. Lewis's great divorce as there is an end and there's that hope that we were talking about earlier. And it's it's going to be difficult. There are going to be 
great challenges, both internal and external, but the path leads us to something that is far greater than those obstacles or the pain that we encounter on them. The thing that's so powerful about storytelling, and I mean, The Great Divorce, is it's, it's a work of fiction. Yes. But it throws in so many true life lessons. Uh, but it, it's that. You, we're almost kind of saying, well, what do you call the place the bus goes to? Is it heaven? And is Great Town hell? And right. Is the middle, like, what is it? Like, Lewis uses this word purgatory, but he's not at all advocating purgatory. Right, right. It, there's all this kind of like, this story is so deep, you can draw so many different meanings from it. Like, there, yeah, there's this one meaning that, and we're kind of like discussing, like, this uh-huh. general meaning, but so many people can find themselves in it. Because stories don't always say, well, this is about this specific kind of person, this specific kind of life. So if you are of this race and if you're of this age and you do this kind of a job, sorry, the story isn't going to fit with you. Mm. Uh, Stories don't do that. Mm -mm. Stories just kind of open a door and say, come in and see it as you are and see where it's trying to take you. Yes, that's and that reminds me that I just finished reading David Copperfield with my students here at LACS and at the beginning Dickens says that this is one of his one of his favorite stories David is one of his favorite characters and a lot of people ask what is this story about and he says I'm trying to I'm paraphrasing this but but basically the story is about the story like I think sometimes as westerners <laughs> we want propositions Mm. stories don't give us these neat propositions. They are more like wardrobes that open up our imaginations and lead to all these other connections and all these other worlds. And that can be frustrating. We even see the frustration with Jesus when he's talking with his disciples in in story form and parables. So many of his listeners were thinking, what? In the world is his point. And oftentimes Jesus has to explain his point. But stories, they don't, ironically, they're far more powerful than propositions in my estimation, but they are a lot less clean. And neat. Well, because they invite you to do some work. Yes. Uh, Andrew Stanton, the guy who uh, directed Finding Nemo, okay. Toy Story, yeah. uh, wrote them too. Um, he He says... I can stand here and tell you four, or I can tell you two plus two, Hmm. and you come up with four on your own, Hmm. and that's what a story does, is it invites the audience one piece of information at a time, and then they got to put things together on their own, which is more powerful because you've done something, and you understand it, you own it. You're invested in it. Yeah. It's like a little food trail. Breadcrumbs. Yes, I just love stories. And I just remember growing up, just whenever we had free time, we were always either telling stories or watching stories. And so I just tend to always think of my life and future decisions in the framework of a story. Hmm. And maybe people, other people think of it in different frameworks, and I think that's fine, but... Dane Bundy is a storyteller because he has just always seen his life in that framework of a story. So then how can we start to see story more clearly? Um, I'm thinking like, I think some people read fiction and say, if I'm going to read, it's got to be real. Got it. Um, Or we watch movies. Some people might think it's a waste of time. I guess I'm just asking, how can we read and watch more mindfully to see, you know, that open wardrobe, if you will? What's this, what's this trying to, how's this trying to shape us? Well, we talked a little bit earlier about kind of the three components of a story. A hero who wants something, who is stopped by something, and somehow is either able to overcome that or be overcome by it. And I think stories give us all those three things. So as a Christian, I would invite them to think about the stories that they are consuming in a couple in a couple of ways. One thing that I like to do, whether the stories that I'm listening to are written or produced by a Christian or not, I try and think in lines of common ground. So 
Mm-hmm. When I see this hero in this story, I think, okay, what is it that they want? Do I see that desire as something that I naturally want to? And um, if it's something that is uh, resonates with me, then boom, I can automatically connect with, with that character. Um, and uh, if it's not something that I desire, I may ask, is it something that I should desire or something that... It's good that I don't desire. So right away you start trying to compare yourself or find the parallels, the connections. I do. I just naturally do. Yeah. And I think that's what stories do is they say, here's one perspective that are actually going to introduce you to thousands of different human beings. Hmm. And then I do the same thing with the obstacle. Often I can identify with what this person is. More, More often than not, I can identify with what this person is butting up against. And that um, just continually reminds me, oh, this is just another glimpse of what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. That kind of reminds me of maybe this is this obstacle is just another reminder, like in Ecclesiastes, of the harsh reality of living in our world. And then when we get to the conclusion, there's often insights there too, like, Okay, are they overcome by this obstacle? Yes. Well, then that is just, once again, another reflection of, oh, here we are. It's someone taking a mirror and and reflecting reality back to us. That can be really helpful. Sometimes, uh, maybe we don't share the worldview with the writer or the producer, Mm -hmm. and they... Give us a desire, and I go, oh, I can see that desire. I've wanted that desire. I've had that desire before. Here's an obstacle. Oh, once again, I, I've had that obstacle right in front of me, and then, oh, that's an interesting way to resolve that obstacle. Uh, I see some conflict here with my worldview and their worldview. And so that then invites a discussion with other people about... Um, you know, this person has been struggling with X and this was their solution to it. Does, is that a good reflection of reality um, living in, you know, God's story or not? So I, I think of, I don't know why, but the great Gatsby just came to my mind. And so the central character, in my estimation, his desire is to be great. And I immediately understood what he was what he was feeling. We all have this desire to be meaningful in this world, to have some sort of standout significance. Even Jesus comments to his disciples was like, "What are you talking about?" And he heard them. They were talking about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And so Gatsby then is basically overcome by this desire to be great. And it's what I would call a, a broken story. Where it's, it's a tragic story where this man is overcome by his desire to be great. And so as a Christian, I would see that and I would say, here's a very important piece of literature which gets so many things right. Mm-hmm. That um, we all have this desire to be significant. And there are lots of ways that you can pursue significance, just like Solomon did, that are just going to come back and leave you in a tragic, broken place. And so as a Christian, I would say, you're looking for significance. I know you are because it's built into being human. And let me tell you that if you want to be great, Jesus tells you how to do that. It's to X, Y, and Z, as he talks about in the gospels, it's being a servant to others. And so great stories are able to really capture what it means to be human these these desires that all of us have and these obstacles that we all overcome and these great stories, um, the greater they are, I would say the more they resonate with just about every type of person. Yes. And so that's how I might analyze something like The Great Gatsby from a Christian perspective. A lot of common ground and then almost like a springboard then to the gospel. What this man was looking for was greatness, and it was, and he didn't find it where so many of us are looking. So stories are not just entertainment. No. They are <laughs> mirrors and reflections of ourselves yes. if we're willing to look. Yes. 
And at Stage and Story, we are inviting people into a community so that we can be more intentional, excuse me, more intentional about understanding those elements of stories. And that excites me. That That is something that I... Um, I love doing with my students and and with my friends is talking about uh, stories, whether they're from their, their personal stories or whether they're stories from Hollywood. How do they, um, what truths are they telling us? What lies maybe are they telling us? And so we're asking the movie questions. Yeah. The way you yeah, said we should do with people. Right. Yeah. And, and writers have always seen literature as alive. Whenever we write about literature, we always write in the present tense. It's this living document that goes beyond the author. And so I'm just, yeah, encouraging people to ask questions about uh, these stories that they are taking in. I think it's time that Christians stop just consuming, start having a dialogue. Dane Bundy telling us about story and the stories that have shaped him. Thank you very much. Thank you, Pastor Brand. Great to be with you. All right, before we close, it's time to preview next Sunday's passage. Pastor Mike will be teaching from the Gospel of John. So in recap, we have Matthew, we are mountain climbing with Jesus. Mark, we are braving the wilderness with Jesus. Luke, we are storytelling with Jesus. And now, from my secret intel sources, I found out what Pastor Mike is doing. He is engaging humanity with Jesus. I think it's a really great theme he's pulling out of the Gospel of John. And let me tell you why. And I'm going to tell you why so that you can read through the Gospel this week looking for this theme of engaging humanity with Jesus. So from the beginning of John's gospel, we are told that the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. It's John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then immediately, we begin to see that the word indeed is flesh. It's human. And it's, it's relatable. It connects with us. In John chapter 3, we see Jesus meeting with Nicodemus in this lengthy interview with him. In John chapter 4, we see another interview, Jesus with the woman at the well in, of all places, Samaria. There we also see a human moment where Jesus is asking for water. Then we go forward, and Jesus has a lot of sermons in John, um, in the Gospels, uh, I'm sorry, John is a Gospel, of course, but uh, in the Synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, they have Jesus having very short messages. Matthew's the exception, he has a couple longer messages in Matthew, but usually they're parables, they're little um, par- proverbs, little sayings, and some conversations and such. But in John, everything's long. Everything is big. And Jesus doesn't give parables in John's gospel. In fact, it's probably safe to say that John itself is a parable. Well, Jesus is giving these messages, rather lengthy. Um, then we see him in uh, chapter 8. We see him with the woman caught in adultery. Uh, very brief, but there's a human moment there with Jesus and that woman. Then in John chapter 9, we see Jesus talking with the man born blind. So there's another one-on-one interview. In John chapter 11, we see Jesus' friendship, a much more intimate look at his relationship with some people, with Lazarus, Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha. And... Here we have another very human moment. The shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five, Jesus wept. And throughout this story, we see that he is emotionally disturbed. Then we have in chapter 13, the gospel kind of turns. And it now focuses on Jesus' passion, his, his death and resurrection. And as the beginning of John sees the word coming down and becoming flesh, this second part of John in chapter 13, we see that same word coming down and coming to the lowest parts of human flesh 
Jesus literally comes down and washes his disciples' feet. And so we see these kinds of moments throughout John's gospel where Jesus is very much human, very much connecting. We call his coming to earth the incarnation. Carne being flesh, his infleshment. And I want us to emphasize as we read, to just really focus and meditate and pray about and think about the fact that Jesus was human. He knows what it's like to be with us, to be among us, because he is. He came, and he was one of us, and he talked with us, and he understood us, and he hungered, and he was tested, and he had emotions. One of the challenges for us is to accept the fact that we are bodies. A lot of us are uncomfortable with bodies, but Jesus embraced it. And by embracing a body, it told us, even before the cross, that God is for us, that he loved us enough to become one of us, because love becomes that which it loves. So how can we practice incarnation How can we get into the lives of people around us? How can we engage humanity with Jesus? Ask yourself those questions while you read John's Gospel. And come with an open heart for what Pastor Mike will have to say about these things. Grace and gratitude, everyone. And a little girl and a mama. And the end.